invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. If you are new to Grace Covenant or if uh, you just haven't picked up yet on our pattern, uh, we have uh, communion uh, the first Sunday of, of each month, and we value communion. Uh, J.I. Packer once said, and it actually uh, was something surprised me, but it influenced me, was uh, that the Anglicans demonstrate their value of the table by its frequency, uh, and the Presbyterians and Reformed uh, by its centrality. And so what we've tried to do is we, uh, for the first Sunday of each month, is to uh, approach God in worship and then put our emphasis and focus on the table. So we take a break from whatever series we are doing the first week each month in order to prepare our hearts with a message to enable us to appreciate and to experience uh, the promises that God has made through the table. Now, taking a break from our series right now is pretty easy because we're not actually in one anymore. Um, we finished up last week with Psalms. We'll pick up next week with James. Um, and as we have done in the past, although not quite as extensively, Kathy and Grace Notes this week sent out uh, not just a, a quick blurb to remind everyone we're going to be studying the book of James, uh, a video from the Bible Project to give you an overview uh, of that. Some of you, it'll be a refresher. For others, it might be an introduction, but it's a worthwhile video to look. I think it's five minutes long. Uh, and then we will also issue the same challenge we have in our recent series. Uh, we would want to encourage you to read through the entire book of James, which is not that long, once a week for uh, any week that we are in it. Uh, and you will be amazed at how much you pick up as you read over kernels that you didn't pick up the times before. Uh, and in that way, we are allowing God's Word to shape our minds and therefore our lives. Uh, this morning, however, as we prepare to ourselves to come to the table, I want to focus our attention on these words from the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. Our primary focus will be verse 14. I'm going to read verses uh, 14 and 15. So hear the word of God. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy God, we come before you, standing amazed if we seriously consider who you are, what you have done, and who we are, that you would even be aware of us, much less invite us and call us to come into your presence. You invite us to come into worship that we may be renewed in the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus, cleansed from our sin and strengthened in righteousness that comes by faith. And you've promised that your word is a tool that you use to accomplish both purposes. And so now, Lord, I pray that through this word, this simple verse, you would enable us to think clearly and deeply about what you have done on our behalf, that we may not only feel comfortable coming to you, but that we would feel compelled to do so, for your love is greater than we can possibly imagine. Bless us with this understanding, Lord, that we may trust you, rest in you, rejoice in you, and like the apostle, even boast in you. This is our prayer. By your spirit, be at work within us to enable us to do so. We pray in Christ, our Redeemer King. Amen. 
Early 20th century author and Yale University literature professor William Lyons Phelps once said this, the value of anything is not what you paid for it, not what it costs to produce, but what you can get it for at auction or get for it at an auction. And it is amazing what people are willing to pay for at auctions. Uh, consider uh, this list of, uh, I, I got from a, an article from Reader's Digest uh, from January of this year. Uh, the article title was, The Weirdest Items Ever Sold at Auction. I'm going to give you a snippet, not all. Uh, the first seems maybe normal, some to some of you more than others, but the first Superman comic auctioned for $3.2 million dollars. If you've got the money, you like comics, why not? John Lennon's molar sold in 2011 for $31,200 to a Canadian dentist who apparently has it on display in his office. Roger Bannister's running shoes, the ones that he wore when he broke the four-minute mile barrier, those sold for $411,493. Queen Victoria's undies sold in 2015 for $16,300. Now there's a description here. Embroidered with her initials VR for Victoria Regina, the undies were in pristine shape, having been wrapped in tissue and kept in a temperature-controlled room. A lock of Elvis Presley's hair sold for $115,000. Not the king, but I guess somebody that people like him. Willie Nelson's braids uh, sold for $37,000. Russell Crowe's jockstrap from the film Cinderella Man sold at auction in Australia for $6,500 in 2018. A Dorito chip shaped like the Pope's hat sold for $1,200 in 2005. So, you know, what's that, 3,000 today? I don't know, um, a Dorito chip. Um, William Shatner's kidney stone, you know, Captain Kirk, his kidney stone sold for $25,000 in 2006. And another one that sort of made, you know, makes sense if you got the money, the violin that played as the Titanic sank was recovered, it was restored and auctioned for $1.7 million. Some of these are weird, though. Maybe all of them are qualify as, as weird, because uh, what are you going to do with these things? I assume some, the violin and whatever, they go into museums, and that's where they belong. With the amount of money that people are willing to pay, it's, it's not my world. Uh, and I'm not an expert in these things. But as I look at this list and I consider what little I do know about auctions, there's a couple of things that sort of come to mind. What somebody's willing to pay for something is a demonstration of how much they really, really want it. Uh, and if it's what somebody really, really wants, then the value is placed there. In this passage, the Apostle Paul tells us something about, talks about something that he values. And he says it's the cross. May I never boast in anything except for the cross of Jesus Christ. And it sounds wonderful. We're gathered here preparing to come to the table. But if you think about it, it really is rather an odd thing to boast about. Listen to the way John Piper describes it. He says, in a sense, 
Boasting in the cross is, is like exulting in the electric chair, the gas chamber, or a lethal injection, or a lynching rope. No manner of execution has ever been devised that was more cruel and agonizing than to be nailed to a cross and hung, to, up, hung up and to die like a piece of meat. The cruelty of it is such that uh, New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce says this, the word crux was unmentionable in polite Roman society. Even when somebody was being condemned to death by crucifixion, the sentence used was an archaic formula, hang him on the lucky tree. An Australian Bible scholar, Leon Morris, commenting even more, says, Paul not only used the unmentionable word, he gloried in it. He saw with clarity that the central truth of Christianity is that the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross for the salvation of sinners. And when that great truth is grasped, all else pales in significance before it. And if you and I see in the cross what the apostle Paul sees in the cross, then like Paul, you and I will see beauty where everyone else sees only the gruesomeness and and the ugliness. Because if you and I see in the cross what the apostle Paul sees in the cross, it causes him to say, let me boast in nothing other than the cross of Jesus Christ. You and I are going to see evidence of how much God loves you and loves his people, all who belong to him. And we're going to see the unimaginable, the unfathomable price that God was willing to pay to make you his own. The price that he paid to redeem you. I want to look at this, uh, this verse with kind of, uh, in simple. The, the first point will be more foundational. The others will be uh, simpler. Um, but for those of you that like the organization, we'll do so with three R's. It's going to be redemption, relationship, and then results. And so we begin with redemption that Paul is, which is the reason that Paul rejoices so much that he wants to boast and boast about that instead of anything else. It was George Orwell who once said this, that sometimes the first duty of an intelligent man is to restate the obvious. While my intelligence is often debated, ask my children. Let me restate two truths that will be a reminder for some and perhaps news for others. First is this, is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the second is this, the wages of that sin is death. In other words, every one of us has the same problem. It doesn't really matter whether uh, you are, you know, tall or short. It doesn't really matter whether you are black, white, Hispanic, Asian. It doesn't really matter whether you're Republican or Democrat, independent, or, you know, done with the whole thing and not voting ever again in your life. Every one of us that is here, it doesn't really matter whether you are a Christian or not a Christian. All have sinned, and what that sin warrants before a holy God is death. And so every one of us has the same problem. 
And if we are aware that we have that same problem, then we all are in need of some solution. And the Bible tells us over and over and over again, that solution is not within ourselves. It is not within our capacities and capabilities. We have this problem. We can't fix it. We can't fix it individually. We're not looking for the, the spiritual Bill Gates to come along and to, you know, or whoever was the first to invent the, the computer or internet, somebody to invent the way. And we can't do it collectively. We just have a problem. And so unless the God of the universe who created all things against whom our sin is an offense gives us the solution, then we are stuck in our problem. But we have an additional problem that makes it more difficult for us to appreciate the problem in the first place. Maybe it's because we don't have the capacity to fix the problem ourselves, but now, at least in our culture, the problem is, is we've come to the conclusion that we just don't have sinners anymore. Can't fix it, let's change the definitions. In a highly therapeutic culture, in the world around us, and increasingly and too frequently in the church as well, we have adopted a therapeutic mindset. And so we have people who are victims, victims of dysfunction, those who are in the midst of, of dysfunction. We have those who have disorders, but what we almost never seem to have are sinners. The problem is elsewhere, we are products of the environment, and so we can't possibly be held responsible for whatever issues that we have. And it's not that that is untrue. It's not that we don't have a problem in the culture and that there are not a lot of people who are victims, and all of us have issues because we live in a broken, fallen world, and we grate on one another, and there's all sorts of things. But if the world doesn't see the nature of the problem, there's no way that the message of the cross is going to make sense to them. And they're never going to see the beauty of it because absolutely it's ridiculous to think about here's the problem and now here's the solution. Somebody else is going to come and is going to die for you. And if you just believe in, in that and, and trust in that, if you just own that as your own, well, then you're going to remission. Have you ever stopped to think how ridiculous that sounds? But the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. And that is a big concern. That's the environment in which we live. But a greater concern to me is that many, many Christians are every bit as confused about the, the nature and the reality of the sin as the world around us. Having already received the promise of God in the person of Jesus Christ, there still is a, a lot of confusion in the church and in our lives about what the extent and the impact and the, and the nature of sin in our lives really is. You see, many people think that once we become Christians, if we take it seriously enough, the, uh, the less sin we will see in our lives. It sort of makes sense. Many who are new Christians often think that uh, the more sins you know, that, that uh, they, they, they have, they, you know, they recognize by 
their own nature, their own experience, that there is sin, they need that to be forgiven. But if you do what you're told, if you follow the rules, if you, you know, you change your behavior, and then you will be less of a sinner. And then we get surprised when we realize we continue to struggle sometimes with the same things. Sometimes new patterns pop up in our lives, not only patterns, but attitudes, desires. And it's difficult to process. Do God's promises fail? Am I not doing this right? Why aren't I different? One of the things that we need to understand in, in the nature of God's plan of redemption is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is a reality. And in Christ, we are forgiven of our sin. But the spiritually mature individual is one who is aware that sin is not just measured by our external behavior. But sin now is also measured by our attitudes and our desires. It's inward as well. And so the mature spiritual Christian actually sees more sin in their life than somebody when they first come to faith in Christ. Because we have an entirely different measuring stick. And if somebody's not aware that that's normal, no wonder somebody is discouraged. No wonder somebody is feeling that they're doing this wrong or gets frustrated altogether. So many people sitting in the pews of the churches, and, and no doubt here as well, just feel the need to... I, I, Fake it until people believe it, and then, but, but it doesn't seem to bring the transformation and the change that we think that the Bible promises, and it does. We need to look at it this way. If you go to the dentist, and I hear there's a Canadian one who has a molar of, of, uh, you know, of John Lennon somewhere, might be a good one to go to. But if you go to the dentist, he or she is going to put stuff on your teeth that shows the places that you missed in your brushing. And the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is a lot like that. You see, the more you know the Word and the more you know the heart of God and you know the, the law of God, then all of a sudden that gets applied to your life and to your heart and to every aspect and every place, things that you may not be brushing. And then when you go and look, all of a sudden, even though you think you've been doing a good job, an awful lot now shows up that you didn't think was there. Now, if you thought that the nature of the game was to, you know, pass the test when you go to the dentist, well, then it feels like failure. But if you recognize you're going to the dentist because you know that you can't eat, the likelihood that you're going to hit everything every single time uh, is so that the dentist will be able to expose certain things so that you can change those patterns in order that you can have uh, healthy uh, teeth and gums. Those are two totally different mindsets, and those are the two mindsets that too many Christians have in their sense. One is that every opportunity of self-examination is that I passed the tests. And the other is the reality that God has already said, look, all of us have sin. John later on in his, in his letter says, look, if you think you have no sin, you're kidding yourself. So this is not a surprise to God. But God has revealed to us is this is the nature. Even though we have been pardoned by faith in what Christ has done for us, now he's at work within us so that we can be transformed and maturing and becoming more and more like Jesus. That is the process that has always been God's plan. 
And so God in his grace exposes what is sometimes painful and embarrassing for us. And the Apostle Paul, when he says, may I boast of nothing other than the cross, he's aware of what the message of the cross says. The message of the cross says, you're a sinner that necessitated the death of Jesus Christ in your place. But you are beloved, having been made after the image of God and redeemed by the blood of his own son, the price that he paid for you. And the one who paid that price is now at work within you. Not so that you can score higher in the Christian life than someone else. This is not the SATs, which as I understand, they finally got rid of. Where were they 40 years ago? Anyway, that's um, so. But Paul recognizes what you and I need to recognize. We're a mess. But God in his glorious grace has given us the remedy to our shared condition. That's the redemption. Now the relational, because in this passage, it is amazing. Let me read what... James Montgomery Boyce says in his commentary on Galatians on this particular verse, Paul says it is inconceivable that he could boast in anything but the cross. It's striking how much the gospel is involved in this statement. The cross speaks of the atonement necessitated by man's sin, which is what we just talked about. The full name of the Savior used indicates the significance of his person and the role he played in our redemption. And the pronoun our speaks of the personal aspects of Christ's redemption, for it is ours through our response of faith. And I think it's significant what he's saying here. As Paul's speaking, he doesn't say you know, anything shorthand, but as Boyce points out, he says, may I boast in nothing other than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong when there's conversations. You just speak of only Jesus or Christ or... But as Paul's using this, he's drawing attention to the person who personally made redemption on our behalf, made atonement in order to redeem us, to belong to God. And the full name of the Savior indicates the significance of who he is. The Christ is the Greek for Messiah, that he is the long-promised Messiah, the one who would come and and, and make all things new, make things right. And as we read at Christmas time every year, he shall be called, we call him Jesus, which is again the Greek for Yeshua. That's what he should be called because he will save his people from their sins. And how is he going to do it? It's because he is going to, he who is God has come in the flesh to save people from their sins. He's going to die on that hideous death on that cross in order to redeem and to demonstrate love. And so the significance of the person, but then it goes beyond there, is the word our. The word our is, is relational and it is possessive. The word, it's our. 
Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a relationship for everyone who trusts in him, who believes in him. He didn't come just to accomplish it and say, okay, it's done, and then walk off. When we trust in him, we enter into a relationship, a covenant relationship with God and and with his people. And the word our is significant also because it reminds us that it's not just mine. Paul didn't say that my Jesus Christ. Now in our personal devotional time, it's for the prophet to speak about that. But we have to remember that we are a corporate community that has been redeemed by uh, the blood that was shed on the cross by the promised Messiah on our behalf. And the word our connected to the full name of the significance of this person gives us some idea of not only who did this for us, but the relationship that we have with him now. He is ours. We are his, as the old hymn says. And the result the apostle speaks of is this, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Now the ESV study Bible note says this, that that means that the world has been crucified to me is that the world no longer attracts or influences Paul. Goes on and says this, Paul is saying that the entire world system, and that's vitally important because sometimes we get confused about our relationship to the world. We're not talking about the physical world. We're not even talking about the, the people in the world. We're talking about the systems, the values, the powers, that they are not what we operate by, that they uh, are not... Uh, ultimate if we are those who belong to God. But picking up on that, um, it's that he's saying that the entire world system in all its glory, but in opposition to God, is dead or destroyed in its power to attract him. It is, has no influence or power over Paul, no appeal to him. An eye to the world, Paul is similarly dead to the desires and attractions of the world, for he serves Christ as his new master. And so what Paul is saying that because I am trusting in Jesus Christ, I've had a breakup with the world. The world is now the world system is now my ex and relates pretty much like sometimes sadly exes do. There's an antipathy, there's no use for one or the other. In other words, what Paul is saying here is essentially like in the movie lines, you know, I, I remember in The Godfather, you know, uh, you know once uh, uh, Michael Corleone recognized that it was his brother who betrayed him, and he says, you're dead to me. Now, I'm not suggesting The Godfather is the pattern for our life. That does seem to fit in the, pa- the pattern of the worldliness that Paul is warning against, but, you know, you get the idea here. But when we are now in Christ, the things of the world, which are incredibly alluring— and sometimes makes sense to just build on a system that is faulty. It'd be like eating a sandwich on a loaf of bread that has fungus on a corner of it, you know? Probably not a good practice, even if it's only just a little bit. And Paul says, when we recognize the value, the glory of the cross, when we boast in the cross, we say to the world, I may love you, but you're dead to me. And when we say that to the world, the world almost always says, you're dead to me. 
The irony of that is that the world continues even when we're dead to the world and they don't like it. They want us to come back to be their way. And the irony also with that is though the world may be system may be dead to us, God has called us to be his people in this world in order to redeem the world. And so therefore, we love the people in the world. We love our neighbors. We love our cities. We love our communities. God has put us here in order to bless them, but that's an entirely different message. But this morning, I want us to consider seriously what the Apostle Paul says about not only the, the substantiveness of the cross, but the power and the beauty of the cross as we prepare to come to this table. So what is it that we're supposed to do? I would challenge you this way, that you don't minimize the gospel by minimizing your own sin. Own your sins and deal with them. So Psalmist says, Lord, search me and see if there is any way of iniquity within me. I would invite you to make that your prayer. Make your prayer as you prepare to come to this table and make that regularly part of your prayer. That the Lord would expose just like the dental tablets do. Because the Lord is not inviting you that in order to punish you. He's inviting you in order that you can deal with it. And how do you deal with it? You confess it to the Lord, you repent of it, and then you believe the promise of God in the cross all over again. That if you have trusted in Christ Jesus, you have been pardoned, you have been forgiven, and he is at work within you to cleanse you from that sin. One of the old Puritans said that only those who are willing to share in their guilt, in the offense of the cross, will experience the blessings of the promise of the cross. And I think that's true for us as well. Only when we are willing to acknowledge that we are a mess are we going to recognize the power and the beauty of God's grace in Jesus Christ crucified for us. So what is it that we're supposed to do? I don't think I can do any better than what Martin Luther said. Own your sin, but he said it more poetically. Sin big, but let your faith be bigger. In other words, own it and don't be afraid no matter what it is that you might see, but take that to God, take that to the cross. Because what Jesus Christ has done is greater than all of your sin, than all of our sin. And when we know that, we experience it. And that is the power of transformation in the cross that we taste and see when we come to this table. Let me pray. Father, as we come today, we pray that you would speak to us and that you would remind us of what you have promised and what you have accomplished and then promised again. Many of us have tasted it and experienced it and then how frightened we are to do it again. Overcome our fear, Lord. And let us taste your grace. Work within us a desire for holiness and not just the praise of others. Grant us the desire to commune with you by opening our eyes and see what love 
is ours in Christ Jesus. For it is only because you have first loved us that we love at all. Change us, Lord, we pray in Christ. Amen.